Acts chapter 8, and we'll be in verse 26. It's very easy to forget the gospel. It's very easy to forget the gospel and to go searching for more in some other god or idol because we have really two things going against us. We have a sinful and fallen nature that is our flesh, and then we also have an enemy that desires to keep us from hearing or reading the gospel again. And if those weren't enough, if, that wasn't, if those two enemies against us, one living within us, is not enough, the gospel fails to remain popular in our world. Sermons and songs and books are catered toward the gospel of self-love, especially, especially currently, and how I can be doing better, when that's not good news at all. Because it takes away our eyes from Jesus. We have thousands of distractions the instant we open our eyes in the morning. And at times, fighting sin and beholding Jesus seems helpless. It's easy to forget the gospel. So what are we supposed to do? What would help us to focus more on Jesus and the good news of Jesus? What would help? Sharing them. Now, that's super broad and vague and, and not helpful if we just leave it there because that, does that mean I share my testimony? Do I tell someone that Jesus loves them? Do I show them a flow chart with their sin and it tails off? <laughs> do I draw a cross between, you know, there's this side and this side and it, the cross covers the chasm? Do I share a tract? Do I lead someone through a prayer? Do I need to break down the theological viewpoints of the Trinity? Do I buy them a coffee? Do I buy them a couch? And the answer to all of those is maybe, Sharing the gospel is not some step-by-step -step thing we follow each time with each person. The message is the same, but the way we share that message is going to be different for everyone. For instance, I know that you've seen it, and I've seen thousands of commercials for M&Ms. They're all different sorts of ways of getting the same message across. Buy me. Buy these candies. It's the same thing over and over again. Uh, at one of our men's retreats a few years ago, an older guy, he... Uh, he dressed himself up to look like Braveheart, like the blue paint and everything. Um, and he was just yelling and, and spitting everywhere. And he's like, he's encouraging us to follow Jesus. And it was really kind of amazing. Um, but I, like, because I, I, when I saw it, I was like, okay, yeah. I, I just wanted to go chop a pine tree down, you know, in that time. <laughs> For Jesus, of course. Um, and if I were a betting man, I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe. I don't think that happened at the women's retreat. I just don't know. If you, if you yell at my wife to do something, you're getting something thrown at you. So I don't think that that's going to work. But it's very easy to forget the gospel. And it might be because we aren't sharing it. I can guarantee you that those who worked on those M&M commercials for years will never forget about those candies. What would help us to focus more on Jesus and his gospel? Sharing them. How do we do this? Let's read. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, 
and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. The fact that we have your word is a miracle. That we, sinful, fallen humanity, not deserving of any kindness or grace at all, And yet you sent us your words. You spoke. And you've given them to us to show us the way to be saved, to show us our salvation that we have in Jesus. And Father, we thank you for that. And we pray now, Father, that you would open your word to us. That you would open our minds, open our brains, remove every distraction from us so that we would see only you and what you have for us in your word. And since we desire that, Father, if there is anything that I say that is contrary to your word, that is against your word, I pray first that you would keep me from saying it. But if I do in my sin, would you help us to all forget it? And God, if there is anything in this room that any of us think or come up with that is against your word, that is not proper thinking of you, would you remove it from our minds? Help us to see only you. Help us to be reminded of our salvation in Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would help us to focus more on Jesus and his gospel? Because they're easy to forget. We have a sinful flesh. We have an enemy against us. It's easy to forget the gospel. Even if we are being quote-unquote, good Christians, what would help us to focus more on Jesus and his gospel? Sharing them. How do we do this? We see three actions from our text that we can emulate. One, actually, I have them up. I will have them up here because they're kind of long-ish. One, rise and go when the Spirit calls, maybe even run. Two, meet people where they are, know them, love them, pray for them. And three, preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus for them and for me. 
three actions from our text that we can emulate to share the good news of Jesus and his gospel and to focus on it even more. Rise and go when the Spirit calls, maybe even run. Meet people where they are. Know them, love them, pray for them. And three, preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus for them and for me. So let's take a look at the first one. Rise and go when the Spirit calls. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Here's the call of God from God for Philip. Rise and go to the desert place. Literally, the place of isolation. Yay! Not the Bahamas. But... This is important for us to see because God in his infinite wisdom might be calling you and I to go to a hard place. It will cost us to follow Jesus. It will cost us to obey the call of God to go because maybe that means we go across the globe. Maybe it means going across the street. It could mean a whole lot, but the common denominator is that it's going to cost us. Right now, it doesn't cost us a whole lot where we live, but I do think it's going to change within the next few decades. It's already illegal to preach against gay marriage in Canada. It's already illegal to preach Jesus in China. The day will come when it could cost us more than our comfort. So how will we respond? Where is God calling you to go? And do you know? If you don't know, will you ask? We see how Philip responds in verse 27. He gets the call, and he rose and went. The angel of the Lord doesn't tell him anything. He doesn't give him any clues as to how to succeed on this mission, uh, who to look for, what to say, or even how to say it. He just says, go. And Philip's like, okay. Stands up, and he goes. Now, what does this mean for you and I? Because what if, what if I've never seen the angel of the Lord? And I know I have the Spirit as a believer, but he never talks to me with audible words. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? And since I am sinful, how do I know that if what, I'm, what I think I'm hearing or feeling is sinful me or the Holy Spirit? There are two main ways to know for sure. The first is Scripture, and the second is prayer. In order to recognize the Spirit's guiding us, we must know Scripture. Believers are to search the Scriptures, meditate on them, and commit them to memory because the Word is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit will use the Word to speak to us. He will bring specific Scriptures to mind. And knowledge of God's Word can help us to see whether or not our desires are from us or from Him. The Holy Spirit will never prod us to do anything contrary to God's word. If it conflicts with the Bible, then it's not from the Holy Spirit and should be ignored completely. The second way to know is prayer. Prayer keeps our hearts and minds open to the Holy Spirit's leading. But it also allows the Spirit to speak on our behalf, like in Romans 8, verse 26 through 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. 
And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. By prayer, we get a sense of who or what task God is leading us to. When you pray for God to lead you to people, who comes to mind? When you pray for God to lead you to a task, what is it that breaks your heart in this world? Is it an unreached people group with no access to the gospel? Is it a career field with little to no viable Christian witness? Is it the hundreds of foster kids in our community? Is it the thousands of girls being turned over to the sex slave trade in Southeast Asia? Is it the millions of babies being murdered each year in the name of freedom of choice? What is it that's breaking your heart? It could be the Holy Spirit. It's important to note, though, that we have the choice of whether or not to accept. We have the choice of whether or not to accept the Holy Spirit's guidance. Philip could have said no. He could have just remained, I guess he was seating. When we know the will of God, but we do not follow it, we are resisting the Spirit's work in our lives. It's called quenching the Spirit. And usually when that happens, it's due to habitual sin. In sin, we will say no. But what's the proper response? As you pray through where God is leading you, with whom he desires for you to share the gospel with, our response is don't hesitate. Verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. And uh, what we know about where he's coming from, uh, he's an Ethiopian man. He was not allowed in the temple. He worshipped outside. He was returning, seated in his chariot, most likely because he was unfulfilled. He didn't get to go into the Holy of Holies. He didn't get to go into the temple. He was kept outside because of his skin color. And so he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Maybe I can find something in here. Verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And what does Philip do? Verse 30, so Philip ran to him. If God is calling us to something, perhaps our best response is to run. What would help us to focus more on Jesus and his gospel? Sharing them. How do we do this? We rise and go when the Spirit calls. Maybe we even run. But we also have to meet people where they are. This is the second one. Look at verse 29. Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And I love the fact that Luke, uh, he doesn't include in this writing whether or not the chariot stopped in all of this. So I can just kind of picture <laughs> he's running along. Hey, do you know what you're reading? Uh, but do you see what happened here? First, Philip ran to him. Philip ran to him. Very simple but overlooked concept. He went to him. The, ch- the call of the church is not come and see, but go and tell. And Philip goes even a step further, and he assesses the situation. He's running alongside it, and he can hear. He's like, oh, I know that. That's Isaiah. 
He gets to know the situation a little bit so that he can share best with this man. He asks him, like, can you understand what you're reading? And he didn't run up next to the chariot and say some rehearsed line like, can I tell you about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? No. He steps into the eunuch's world. At the end of my senior year of high school, uh, I was not a believer, but life was great for me. I had great friends. I'd just gotten a prom king nomination. I received a partial scholarship to play soccer. I was dating the girl I thought I wanted to marry. Uh, things were looking great until I was at work one day when I get a text. I was at Los Hermanos in Tyrrell uh, from the girl telling me that she had cheated on me. So naturally uh, and premeditatedly, I went and slashed the guy's tires. And over the next few days, I lost it all. I lost every friend I had. I was banned from prom and graduation. I lost my scholarship. And of course, I didn't have the girl anymore. So a few weeks later, I ended up on a mission trip to Los Angeles to go share this Jesus I didn't know with people who also didn't know him. But by God's grace, a leader shared the gospel with me. And he knew my story. He knew everything about me. And so the verse that he took me to because he would hear me, and I've got tears in my eyes telling him how I lost my friends. I lost all this. The scripture he took me to is in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And it hit me like a brick. Jesus wanted to be my friend? That doesn't make sense to me. If you're praying for God to guide you to a person or people, meet them where they are. Take the time to get to know them, to love them. Whoever it is God is leading you to, step into their lives. What do they care most about? What were they doing when you met them first? What do they talk about most? What makes them happy? What are they struggling with? Know them, love them, pray for them. Meet them where they are. What would help us to focus more on Jesus and his gospel? Sharing them. How do we do this? We rise and go when the Spirit calls. Maybe we even run. And we meet people where they are. And then finally, spoiler, we preach the gospel. This is the third point. We preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus for them and for me. Look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Listen for Jesus. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Jesus never justified himself. Verse 33. In his humiliation, justice was denied him, and he didn't go and get it. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? The eunuch knows. There's something deeper to this. There's something different going on here. Surely he can't just be talking about himself, right? Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What is the good news about Jesus? In the empire era, 
of world history, cities were built with walls around them uh, for proper protection from any rival nation, but usually this was the last line of defense. Before the action would ever reach the city, the army would be out on the field of battle engaging in fighting, and it looked a lot like this, actually. I've got a picture. A little bit like the movie 300, just with way less CGI abs. Um, But it was chaotic and hectic, and rightfully so. They're fighting for the sake of their families at home. Because if they lost, the next place the victorious army is going is to the city. To plunder for goods and and riches, to take people and women as slaves and wives. Most likely, though, they would just end up killing everyone. The empire would have only the city walls as one last line of defense, so they would leave a small group of military men in the city for this very situation. And in a moment's notice, they would be up on the walls with their bows, ready to fight. And it all hinged on one man, the messenger. Out on the battlefield, the leader would have a messenger by his side who only had one job, one job, to go and tell the city what has happened. Either the army was victorious or no one is left, the city needs to prepare. And so up in the watchtowers of the cities, they would have men posted through the night, watching intently out on the horizon, waiting for the messenger. If the messenger comes with military advice from the leader, everyone prepares. They know what's coming. But if he's coming with good news, the city erupts in overwhelming shouts of joy because the battle is over and the victory belongs to the kingdom. And at that point, hundreds more messengers would go out into the smaller villages and tell everyone, and they'd all come back, and there'd be this huge parade thrown, and it would be a huge celebration, and it would end with this feast for the ages. In the first century, Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, the guy who was on the coin that Jesus said, as if... Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Caesar Augustus was hailed in writings, in historical writings, as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the bringer of peace to the world. Because many messengers came back from many battlefronts, and all of them had good news to bear about the victory of Caesar. Caesar led Rome into what was now what we now know as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He was amazing. And everyone is rejoicing because of him. And he was at the front of every one of those parades, every triumphal procession through the city streets. And this is the time in which God sends his son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of his people. The Christian life is not characterized by you and I sword-wielding, battle-hardened, CGI abs on the front lines. No. We are at home, cowering away from the fight. In the story of David and Goliath, we are not David. Conquering the Goliath of our lives, Jesus is David. The only one among men who would fight and the only one among men who could fight that fight. You and I are the Israelites of that story. The panicked cowards, not the hero. And so we in this dark world called life have no way of fighting on our own. We are powerless to fight and we don't even deserve to be saved. The only reason anyone needs to fight any enemy is because we invited him in. 
The very king we were created to live under, we ran from him and we marred the good name of the king in our rebellion against him. And so we're lying here. Dead in the streets in our trespasses and sins. And here comes the enemy. What a wonderful savior we have. No other king would stand in the way of such sinner's destruction. But here, we have him. The true son of God. The true savior of the world. The true bringer of peace to the world. The messenger of the Lord has come and proclaimed over his kingdom of sinners. I have defeated the enemy. I have saved you. And then he leads us in triumphal procession. That means there is no military advisement for those in Christ Jesus. There's only good news. It's not, you have to do this. You have to protect yourself. You have to do all of these things in order to be saved. It's look at what Christ has done. You are saved. Jesus Christ has come as the Savior of the world to live a life that we could never live, to die a death that we deserve to die, and to be raised from the dead to show that the battle truly is over. And the banner that now resides over Christianity, over those who believe, is it is finished. Jesus is that messenger. In Luke 4.43, after already proclaiming the gospel in his home, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus is the messenger of the kingdom, bringing good news and those who hear and believe. We become messengers now too. This is God's plan and purpose. God himself became flesh and dwelt among us to save us and to make us into ambassadors, messengers, evangelists, good news people who are joyously set free from the yoke of slavery of sin unto salvation and adoption and redemption into this new kingdom. The battle was won at the cross where the punishment for sins was death and Jesus took it on himself and then rose again victorious. We know it, we read it, we behold it, we believe it and it cannot stay with us. We've been entrusted with it to herald this same good news, to take it to others because the world is running from this king in fear and self-righteousness and sin and one day we will all be judged by him for him to see who is worthy among us. Only one is worthy and only those in him are counted worthy. Only those covered in the blood of the sacrificial lamb will get to come in. It's not simply life and death. It is eternal life and death. But there's a way. This is the good news about Jesus. This is the gospel we've been so undeservingly given. And now we, with our hearts filled with joy, we get to rise and go and run and meet those around us where they are to greet them with this message of hope. And our great Father has made it so that as we share it, we see more and more of its contours, more of its depth, 
more of its weight. And it becomes more and more meaningful to us. And it becomes more and more beautiful to us. This is part of the reason why we are gospel-centered as a church. Because everyone, the unsaved, the newest believer, the most veteran believer on the earth, we all need to behold the same good news because it's by this news that we remember who we truly are forgiven. Otherwise, we'll think there's work to be done. We won't think that it's, that it's truly finished. Why? Why is it important for believers, specifically, to come back to the gospel? We did not... Sorry, why is it important for believers to come back to the gospel? Because we still sin. We did not achieve our sinless status at the moment we believed. It's not come fully to us yet. And so we need the good news. We don't need military advice. Because sin can leave us feeling helpless. I'm in the depths of despair and I'm deeply brokenhearted in my sin and I'm wrestling with my flesh or the enemy or something. And it's causing me to long for even more sin. And I know that I should turn to my Father. I know that I should turn to prayer. I know I need help, but I feel powerless against this pulling of my soul to its own destruction I know that this is what sin leads me to. I know that sin leads me to destruction. I'm a professional sinner. I don't have to see that anymore. I see the darkness of it. I feel it in my bones, and yet I still want it. I can cognitively understand the biblical notion of grace, but I don't want to turn to grace. Because I know for a fact I don't deserve it. And I can't handle it. Grace is too good for me. It's too out of my reach. It's too wonderful for the likes of a sinner like me. I'm utterly wretched in my sin. Why would I ever be able to accept this gift? Why would God even want me back? Paul writes this in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Are we not all there? But look at the very next verse. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. And he being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
even when we were dead in our trespasses. So that means maybe right now. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. So, by the help of your God, return. And wait continually for him. Pick up your drooping hands and face. Strengthen your weak knees. Stand in the proclamation of the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ was victorious on your behalf and that he died for these very sins. And shout at the top of your lungs with clenched fists and gritted teeth in the face of Satan's lie, I am not helpless. God has created me for good works. Jesus died for me. The Holy Spirit is within me. I am a new creation. I am not helpless. I have Christ. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the blood of the cross that has been poured out for me in love. I have the hope of glory that one day this will all be over. I have the word of God. I have the promises of grace for the very sin I am in and that I seem to love so very much. I am not helpless. My sins are not all-powerful. And I cannot believe the lie that I have no resources in my fight against sin. Hebrews 13.5 says this. This is Jesus speaking. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then verse 6 says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can I even do to me? Oh, how patient our God is. How many thousands of times that we've rejected him. But what can sin offer me that is better? This is why we are gospel-centered. This is why the good news of Jesus is for unbelievers, believers. It's for all of us every day. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, already saved. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What is this? What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We are saved and we are being saved both by the same proclamation of the good news of Jesus that the battle is over. Victory has been secured. What would help us focus more on Jesus and his gospel? Sharing that. How? We rise and go when the Spirit calls. Maybe we even run. We meet people where they are. And we get to preach that good news of the gospel. Get to meet people where they are and tell them, listen, this thing that you are going through, this struggle that you have, the deep longing that you see in your life, there's good news for you. In your sin, you are left unto nothing but destruction, but there's good news waiting for you. And one day, believers, we will be sitting at the table, and we will 
look across and see each other? And those with whom we shared the good news? And there will be no more tears, no more sadness, only joy in the new kingdom to come. All by the work of our Savior Jesus, and he will be there too. And we get to enjoy him forever. What a king. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And as we do, it's a picture of this one-day feast. This one-day victorious when Jesus either comes back and gets us or we have passed on and he raises us from the dead and we have a new resurrected body and Jesus leads us in triumphal procession into the kingdom of heaven. And then as we sit, what we do today is a picture of that. It's a picture of that celebration feast. And so if you're a believer, you're welcome to the table to partake as part of the family. However, if you're an unbeliever or if you are in any unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat in this time. 1 Corinthians says that you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. But if this is you, you are not without hope. If you are in unrepentant sin this morning, the good news of the gospel of Jesus applies to you. Fresh and new this morning are his mercies. Jesus has secured your identity. You don't need to search for anything in your sins. So would you turn from them to belief in Jesus again today? And if you're an unbeliever, the news from the messenger is only bad news. In your sin and rebellion against God, you deserve nothing but eternal death and punishment in hell. But there's good news for you in Jesus. If you would believe in his finished work on the cross for your only way to salvation, would you believe in the good news for your soul? For all of us, here's our prayer. Father, I admit and confess my sins to you. Would you, by your grace, give me the strength to rise and go when you call me to go, to meet people where they are, and to preach your good news to others so that they might know you and that I might know you better. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your time to pray through what it is God has given you in his word. Take your time to pray for the spirit to lead you and to guide you in this time. If there are sins that you've not uh, yet repented of, do so in this time. When you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. When the watchman up in the watchtower we're frantically looking out waiting they saw Jesus 
and he wasn't frantically coming. But he was coming in peace. Because he knows and he knew that the battle was over. That victory was secured. For us, how do we know? How do we remember? How do we strive to see and rest in the good news? We simply look to Jesus. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you uh, drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And in a real way, we cannot thank you enough for the good news of the gospel that was heralded to us, that was proclaimed to us. And Father, would you help us to believe? It's very easy to fall into the temptation and to fall into uh, the gospel of me and and of self-care. But God, it, it all makes us want to work. Would you help us to see that our position in you is secured so that we might work from that instead? We thank you, Father, that we, as we sat dead in our sins and trespasses with no hope at all. You came and you lived the life that we couldn't live and you died the death that we deserved to die and you rose again victorious over the power of sin and death and darkness and gave it to us. It is all your work, Father. For dead men and women can do nothing. We praise you and we thank you and we give you all of the praise and the honor and the glory that we have a hope that is alive. We believe, Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us to see the good news. Listen, Jesus, we pray.